sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast Steve Rogers is Operations Manager for the Natural Rice Company based in Kyogle. He's a consultant farmer on dry land rice and has been since 2009. And we're very honoured to have him with us on Environmental As Anything. Steve, thanks for joining Environmental As Anything today. No worries. Nice to be here. Yes. Uh, look, your uh, expertise on uh, dry land uh, rice cropping in the, on the Northern Rivers uh, uh, came to my attention, uh, and I was. I wanted to ask, start out by asking you about the uh, the so-called uh, supply crisis for Australian produced rice, which is expected to run out by Christmas, according to uh, the uh, News Corporation. Um. Yeah. Okay. So. I'll, I think the word crisis probably isn't the best language to use in this environment we're in at the moment. Mm. Uh, we don't really want to be thinking people need to go out and buy rice now and and have another toilet paper fiasco. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is unfortunate. Yes, there has been a couple of years of drought, which has caused uh, Australia's rice production to to be at a very low level. Um, but there is there'll still be plenty of rice on the shelf going into next year, mm-hmm. um, including our own that we have on, on shelves in, in Audi and Coles. Well, that's good. That's good news. People don't need to panic about rice because it is, it is one of those staples of life, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think, um, uh, you know, I think just using the word crisis as though it's uh, it's world-ending scenario probably wasn't the smartest idea. I just think it's it's probably just coincides with a bit of timing on on trying to get some water allocations for the Riverina. Well, that that's right. So I was going to ask you about that. Sunrise were the ones uh, coming out with the uh, the the, the hot, overblown rhetoric uh, and uh, talking about making alternative sourcing arrangements from overseas, but also making a bid for uh, like the, their water. Uh, allocations, uh, blaming the shortfall in production on water pricing reforms. So what, what's what's going on behind the scenes there? Well, realistically, you know, we just we just had a pretty long and, and nasty drought. Um, you know, so the water availability was very low. It wasn't just for rice; it was for a lot of a lot of crops out there, and um, and quite widespread. Uh, so, you know, the drought in turn finished up with um, low food production in Australia, including us. We we were hit by the by the drought as well, um, and you just got to manage your way through it and know that um, eventually it will turn around, um, like it did last year, and and we're back supplying again. Yeah. So the water allocations must be particularly uh, vital uh, to the uh, to the southern uh, wetland rice producers. But you're of the dryland rice uh, variety. You're a, you're an expert in dryland rice production. Uh, what's going on on the northern rivers and and across the country with regard to this this divide between uh, wetland and dryland rice? Well, 
So predominantly all the rice produced in the Northern Rivers area here is grown purely on rainfall, so no no irrigation needed. Mm. Uh, we're in a very unique part of Australia here on the Northern Rivers to, to allow us to grow rice aerobically mm. and without irrigation water. Uh, we, we have a high rainfall amount. You know, we can get six, 700 mils of rainfall throughout the, the growing season, which is from November through till May. Uh, we have warm nighttime temperatures. Now, that, that allows us to grow without any sort of blanket of water. So when I say that, the, the Riverina, they don't have the climate that allows them to grow rice without having paddy water there. They need that paddy water to, at a crucial stage, which is called microspore, to blanket the little pinnacle, which is a little seed head developing down at the base of the plant. They use the water to blanket that away from cool nighttime temperatures. Really? Yeah, so that's, that's one of the main reasons for a paddy, paddy system. Hmm. Um, so, you know, what sets us apart here from what North Queensland, because North Queensland has nice temperatures and plenty of rainfall but they also have a lot of disease and and bird pressure so we don't have that here we've got we don't have any birds that worry us here and and there's and there's no diseases here um namely rice blast so again that's what makes our our area unique um our soils are quite fertile and allow to grow rice successfully and with good grain quality um, add that with high rainfall, nice temperatures, subtropical, and that's why it becomes unique. Yeah, wow. Well, in the land of the gods, uh, everything is possible, eh? <laughs> well, it is. And, you know, everyone's, well, I wouldn't say everyone, but a majority of the population, first, first thing they think about rice is they do picture um, terraced rice paddies from barley and, and, and all this water. But realistically, the rice plant itself doesn't need doesn't need to be submerged in water. Right. So this location gives you that benefit of being able to do the dry land um, uh, techniques. What, what are the, uh, the, the, the other benefits of dry land techniques? Well, it's, it's a quicker turnaround. You can incorporate other crops pretty, pretty easily into the rotation. You can bring rice into your, into your cropping system very easily. It's it's no different to growing um, wheat, barley, or sorghum, or uh, soybeans. So it's, it's easily adaptive to any farmer here on the Northern Rivers. Right. Wow. Uh, and it's sort of an unheralded, uh, you know, opportunity, it sounds like. Uh, there's, there's obviously, you know, environmental as anything, we're always concerned about the state of our environment. Um, you know, the water use uh, is, is obviously a bonus for the environment, I suppose. Uh, what, what other advantages environmentally does dry land rice have? Well, uh, another thing that's not really known by a, a majority of population is that Rice is responsible for, uh, depends what paper you read, but anywhere from 8% to 16% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. That's huge. That's just, it is. It's very huge. And that's, that's, actually, that's just the methane coming from the decaying material in the paddy water um, that, that creates that uh, methane gas. Right, that anaerobic environment, just the rotting of, of the material there. That's right. So growing rice dry land in, in a non-submerged 
situation, we we can reduce that by eighty five percent. Goodness, that is substantial. It is, and it's it's something that uh, you know world rice organisations are trying to to encourage this sort of system more um, to reduce that footprint of methane gas going into the future. Right. Um, there is a sustainable rice platform that that really that's one of its main focuses is to is to reduce these emissions. But again, it's not widely known by um, the general public. No, no, this is this is all news to me. What what I have heard uh, from uh, someone I spoke to about it's just that we were going to be speaking today, uh, saying that uh, the wetland rice uh, involves uh, can involve a lot of killing of ducks. That there's a lot of ducks that die on wetland uh, rice paddies. Is that right? Yeah, they they are a pest. They can be a pest. Mm. Um, and in saying that, I mean the. You know the Riverina. They also, that you know, they do the best they can, and and they are, they all they also have a um, uh, a bitten program, uh, the the rare uh, endangered rice bitten, I think it's called. Yep. I'm not too sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know they do incorporate it, but unfortunately, um, artificial wetlands, which is paddy systems, do encourage bird life. Mm. Um, they can't really decipher the difference between a wetland. And um, and a paddy field, and especially when there is a food source there yep. for them, um, and water, it's it's an ideal. So yes, um, so bird life can or or is does have to be controlled in those sort of situations. Mm. We don't typically have any um, any bird problems here um, with the rice. Uh, there's no real ponded water for them to be attracted to. To um, to come and have a look and 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 uh, find a new home. Wow. So uh, how many? When you say we, how many uh, farmers on the Northern Rivers are now taking up this uh, this opportunity to grow dryland rice? Well, we average about about twenty growers um, a season are, are on our books. Um, we did we did end up going down to five last year because of uh, the dry period leading up to planting. Um, but the guys that did get the rice in, you know, had a quite successful year. Uh, there's a lot of interest. I mean, it is it is an opportunity for growers who do have paddocks that are typically too wet for any any other crop, mm. uh, which is there is plenty of that. And if there is if there is paddocks that do end up getting water across them because of a a, a small flood or a flooding event. Uh, rice will thrive in that situation. Yeah. The wetter, the better. Right. So yeah. So guys, are, farmers is realising that, that there's there is opportunities for for paddocks that they have that that aren't really um, good for producing anything else during that summer period. So it's not just uh, less impact on the environment, but uh, but durable to impact from the envir- environment. It sounds like drought and flood both uh, less of a problem for the dryland rice uh, farmer than they would be for just about anyone else. Yes, um, um, I I farm myself on the edge of Tuckyan Swamp, and uh, I farm rice here because of the small floods that I do get across the paddocks. Hmm. Um, it's the rice thrives in that in that situation, in that environment. Mm. 
Great. Well, good. Well done. I mean, uh, so you're the, when you say we, you're talking about the Natural Rice Company based in Kyogle. Um, you're the operations manager there. Where can people get your product? Is there are they readily available in the the supermarkets? Are you finding distribution uh, easy to to manage? At this stage, all our rice goes into private label on the, in the supermarkets. Right. Uh, we do have in Aldi and, and Coles at the moment. Uh, you will find uh, the in Aldi there is uh, a packet uh, of the medium grain brown rice, mm-hmm. and it does it does have the Northern Rivers on there with one of our local growers pictured on the side of that packet. Oh, yeah, right. Um, yeah, so uh, we're only we're not allowed to export any of our rice here, and we're only at a stage that um, we're not really have the volume to be looking to export. Uh, but we, we hope to have our own natural rice brands uh, packets launched um, in the near future. Oh, fantastic. Well, good luck with that. It's a, a really exciting uh, enterprise you're, you're part of there. Thanks very much for, for sharing some of it with us today. My pleasure. Not a worry at all. That was Steve Rogers, dryland rice farmer and consultant here on the Northern Rivers. Peter Holding is a third-generation farmer and works on his family property in Harden, southeast New South Wales. As well as growing crops such as canola and wheat, Peter runs sheep for wool and lambs. Peter has a background in agricultural science and is a member of the Climate Kelpie, a one-stop shop for farmers, after practical information and tools with which to manage climate change risk and impact. He has an extensive knowledge of the strategies that farmers can use to manage and adapt to climate change many of which he has been able to implement on his own farm. Peter Holding, thank you for joining Environmental As Anything today. Thank you for inviting us. Um, pleased to be here. You're, uh, you're a farmer and you uh, also work as the farm outreach officer for uh, Farmers for Climate Action, I understand. You've, uh, how do, how's Farmers for Climate Action feel about the recent uh, energy roadmap do you see it as a, a, a positive for farmers? Do I see it as a positive? Well, first of all, I wouldn't call it a roadmap to anywhere, but anyway, <laughs> I've seen better tracks in the Simpson Desert with a stick scratched in the sand. But no, um, it was pathetic. Uh, how could I uh, describe it really? I mean, there was nothing in it. Well, I was talking on the ABC this morning, and I, I really think that if you were sitting down to design a climate-denying roadmap this is probably what you'd come up with yeah. it's um it's full of uh illusion and it's full of uh overblown expectations and um and it's basically just kept you know pandering to the to the uh to the gas industry which is not surprising if you stack the committee with gas executives what do you expect yeah yep I, I thought there was a glimmer of hope in it. I wasn't sure what the the rhetoric meant because the rest of it's so hollow, but it did say something about soil carbon being a critical uh, feature of the path forward. Do you have any ideas about what they mean by that? Oh, yeah, but, I mean, it's like fishing. <laughs> it's like going fishing and throwing some burley on the water. Like, they throw out a few words, you know. They mention soil carbon and, you know, a bit of biodiversity and, you know, everybody here's a sort of glimpse and they never actually study what it means but you know like 
the soil carbon issue is a, is a very complicated issue and it's been that way for probably the last 30 years. And we, we do soil tests all the time and they cost around about $80 to $120 depending on what you get. And you can probably get a little bit cheaper. So you can sort of see that uh, if you're going to go out and do a, a couple of paddocks and work out where you're going, it costs a fair bit of money. Mm. And that's the problem with measuring soil carbon. It, it's the cost of the auditing process. Right. So, so he throws out the idea that he's going to come up with a uh, satellite technology that's going to do it. And there are technologies at the moment that CSIRO and everybody use um, green seeker machines that measure the infrared coming out of plants which changes with the amount of nitrogen stuff so yep. you can probably get it but the, the real key to all of that is somebody's got to go out and ground truth it mm. and make sure it's right and quite frankly we've been trying to do that in farming for probably the last 20 odd years and we're still trying to do it so I don't have a so it's it's not so much a roadmap as just a, a thought bubble or a gas bubble, perhaps. Yeah, it's just a research bubble. Like, you could have gone back and said, well, what sort of research could we do? Yeah, right, yeah, we'd look into you know, satellites and see if we can get something to work there. It's like carbon capture and storage. They've been working on that for probably 20 years, and it's got nowhere. No. <laughs> you know, and, and he's saying, oh, well, we've got a plant working in, in Australia. The plant he's talking about is um, Gorgon Chevron plant at, uh, you know, in Barrow Island, that, that area, and... It, quite frankly, was meant to start up about two or three years ago and hasn't done a thing. And when they get it running, it'll probably only sequester half the carbon that they're emitting. So it's just, and and that is in a very favourable geological area that that it might actually work. Most of the areas you're going to have to transport the, the captured carbon to somewhere to pump it into a strata, rock strata, and that is just going to destroy the cost of it. So, mm. you know, that's another high in the sky sort of thing just to keep people off the off the uh, problem of burning fossil fuels for another few years until it gets so bad that we'll just eventually have to ban them yeah yeah well the um the the thing that struck me about uh you know carbon you know carbon capture and storage uh, is that we've got these fantastic uh, carbon capture and storage systems already out there but they're in the process of bulldozing them wood chipping them and throwing them into furnaces at the moment well, well actually that's the only thing that might work you know like there's many farms out there and i i think they could all do if you know you could probably get most farms and put 10 15 percent of timber back on them and it wouldn't affect the productivity of the farms at all it might even improve some of them because it would slow the winds down and, and you know give you a bit of protection for stock and mm. even for your crops but um they don't seem to um you know i mean all of that stuff and it's like it's like regen ag and we'll build up soil carbon in the soil and that, that can be done too but it's and it should be done for productive reasons but it's um really only giving us a window of opportunity to uh to stay in business while we sort out moving away from fossil fuels in the next 10 years and if we don't do it in the next i don't know five yeah i personally think that'll be too late but Mm. let's say we do it by 2030 um you know what we're doing now with planting trees and sequestering carbon on farms with double retention and all this sort of thing it's really only just giving us a short-term break yeah 
So uh, there's uh, a lot of challenges, but there's been some recent movement at the station, hasn't there, with uh, the National Farmers Federation actually issuing their uh, new policy position, new climate policy position, saying that the NFF recognises that climate change poses a significant challenge for Australian farmers, and as a nation, we must accept it to it. We must act to ensure that our economy is well placed to cost effectively reduce our national greenhouse gas emissions profile. Now, it's a, a two page document. It's not a, a terribly weighty uh, tome, but it does seem to hit on some, some key points in there. What, what did you think about it? Uh, well, I helped Farmers for Climate Action as a member of the NSF, and we helped um, develop the policy. And um, first thing I'd say about it is it's a good step forward. We've got to get this. Um, this process underway I'd say 2050 is miles too late but you know mm. um, it's a negotiating sort of a ambit claim I think what is important about it though is the NFF starting to realise that the uh, cost of doing nothing the cost of farming the cost of the economy of sitting here and thinking that that all we need to worry about is the cost of sequestering carbon or something but the actual cost of doing zero is going to be quite significant. Mm. And it's knocked about 20% out of um, crop yields already. So, mm. you know, like, it's not really an option any longer to say, oh, it's too costly to, to do something about climate change. It's going to become absolutely impossible to bear the cost if we don't. No, That's it's right. So what are they saying? Uh, climate change reduced Australian farms' average annual profitability by 22% or around $18,000 uh, per farm. Uh, over the last two decades. So that's that's historical. That's not future projections. Yeah, and it's not a straight line either. It's exponential. So yeah. <laughs> it's going to start getting severe. You know, uh, I think many farmers are starting to realise that and that's helping to put some pressure on. Um, you know, it, it's becoming very, very serious. I think we're in for a very hot summer. Wouldn't surprise me if we got massive bushfires out in the in the plains country with all the cropping country. Now, if you burn a few crops and lose a few, that's going to put a lot of people under a lot of pressure. Mm. Mm. Yeah, in between, uh, in between having them run out of water and uh, and then and then have them, uh, if the fire sweeps through, it uh, it will be absolutely catastrophic, won't it? Yeah, the water may not be such a big problem this year because we have had a particularly good year. Where I am at Harden, it's almost a textbook perfect year mm. at the moment um so yeah the, the you know all our dams are overflowing and all that sort of thing so it'll take a while for that those to empty out um the bigger problem is that the, there's grass up as high as the fences <laughs> and what's not grass is crop mm. and that goes all the way you know, well past the new highway so you have two or three hundred k's of solid grass land mm. if that gets under underway on a fire bearing in mind that a great many of the um, western areas now are corporate farms and don't have a lot of lo uh, lot of manpower, so the brigades are diminished. I just wonder how we're going to how we're going to uh, stop these fires. Mm. Yeah, terrifying prospect, especially watching California uh, going up at the moment. Yeah, yeah, or even last year, like we experienced ourselves. So. Mm. You know, but last year it didn't burn in the open country because there was a drought and no no grass. But mm. and the thing about it is, you know, the fires burnt fast last year. They'll burn twice, three times as fast in the grass open area. Mm. Mm. 
So um, one of the things that the NFF uh, uh, policy uh, document says is that the, the government uh, should acknowledge the role of vegetation in carbon sequestration. We touched on that with forestry. Um, and uh, ensuring that vegetation management policies don't unfairly burden farmers. So is, is there a mechanism that, uh, you know, the, the, that you're calling for or is it that you could see working which would give the farmers the advantage of actually becoming carbon farmers? What, what's that mechanism? Well, I think that's the problem at the moment, is trying to work out exactly what that mechanism. We don't want to see it turn into a pork-barrelling, you know, waste-of-money exercise. Mm. Uh, so therefore it has to have a rigour of, um, uh, you know, auditing, measuring and, and, and understanding of how how much work's been done. And then it's got to come up with a, a means of working out an acceptable value to that. Now, that would be much easier if a price was put on carbon. Mm. But of course, the government regards that as a tax rather than a cost to, you know, for, for pollution. Mm. And it's a really sad in, indictment on the government to get rid of the uh, the um, carbon price scheme when it was around because basically you're asking the polluters to, pl- to pay and you're using that money to pay for these repair jobs and you didn't have to ask the taxpayer to do it. Whereas under the Liberal National Party government, any of this work being done is taken out of tax income. So Yeah, it's out of PAYG, it's out of wage earners' yeah, pockets, yeah. isn't it, rather than coming out of the polluters' pockets. Yeah, yeah. So that's just not, you know, it's not the way I would think it ought to be done. But anyway, no. that's how they do it. <laughs> well, look, that's, uh, you know, if, we'll, we, we've got uh, limited time, Peter, so we might have yep. to wrap it up soon. But uh, what would what can farmers do today to ha- to help to, to to improve their own, uh, you know, uh, ca- uh, climate resilience and uh, to reduce their uh, their climate impact? What what would you recommend? Well, I'd make, I'd make two points. First of all, most farmers these days are doing everything they can. Um, you know, they're, they're controlled traffic, direct drilling, rotational grazing, good many of them have gone to regenerative farming. So so all that's being done on farm. And also today, interestingly enough, Helen Haynes released a, uh, a document on um, uh, going to, uh, you know, communities becoming involved in their own energy generation. And I think that is one of the most important important things I've seen for a long while, hmm. allowing all the towns and farms and communities to set up their own microgrids. Yep. That, to me, would have the biggest impact. Other than that, I think farms farmers ought to uh, keep doing what they're doing, plant more trees and agitate for action now. What about the, um, as, a, as a bit of an aside, uh, but it's not exactly about climate, but the... Uh, the recent shenanigans in New South Wales with the National Party threatening to blow up the coalition uh, so that they could uh, kill more koalas. Is, is, how, how, is, how do the, does the farming community see that kind of behaviour? Well, I think it was outrageous that Barilaro made a statement about farmers not wanting to protect koalas and it, you know, like it's as if we wanted to get rid of them. And I myself would ask the question if we're not prepared to protect what's left of the koala population what the hell are we prepared to protect i mm. mean you know they talk about biodiversity decline and all the rest of it but one of our most iconic animals is in serious trouble and barrel arrows running around trying to allow it to be destroyed i mean it's all about developers and and most farms 
are going to be able to continue to do what they want to do. Yes, it might impact on somebody on the coast who wants to sell their farm and turn it into a housing block. <laughs> That's not traditional farming behaviour, though, it's is it? It's not really farming behaviour, is no, it? No, no. <laughs> no. So, so there's all sorts of problems there, but I think it's disgraceful. And it doesn't... It, doesn't, um, it neither shocks me or distresses me that he's off on stress leave. I mean, mm. he ought to just retire. Well, you know, perhaps that's where he's heading. But, you know, like, I, I wish him all the best in his stress leave. I think he probably needs a rest. But... Um, <laughs> You know, like as you're saying, most farmers aren't going to be impressed to be uh, to be smeared with that koala killer tag. That's certainly not how how uh, what I get from farmers when I'm talking to them. No, and it was just a stitch up. I mean, you know, like I've I've got apparently got koala population. If you look at the map here, mm. and okay, you know, I could get upset about that because we haven't had koalas in this area probably since the 1880s, mm. but. I'd love it. If, if somehow or other we could get koalas back here, that would not worry me one iota. Mm, mm. Uh, I think most farmers would feel like that. I don't think I know many that would want to get rid of them. No. Oh, look, Peter, we could talk all day, but I think I'd better cut it off. We're going to have to move on. But uh, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, not a problem. That was sheep farmer and cropper Peter Holding on Environmental As Anything. Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're hand in hand.